Good afternoon again from me, Andy Sylvester, editor here at City AM on the City View podcast. In a minute, I'll be joined by Jack Barnett, our economics and markets correspondent, as we have a pour over yesterday's spring statement. And then by Kirstine Campbell, McAllen's master whiskey maker, who hopefully will tell us how we too can become master whiskey makers rather than journalists, analysts and traders. Alas, before we move into the world of whiskey, it's the corporate headlines and it's another miserable day for P&O dominating the discussion in the square mile today. The once iconic British brand, synonymous with democratising travel across the channel, has somehow found itself in even more trouble after the firm CEO, Peter Hebblethwaite, all but admitted to a parliamentary committee that, yes, his firm did indeed break the law in the way it dealt with 800 redundancies last week. The boss effectively said that without the move to rid itself of legacy staff, P&O was unviable, that no union would have accepted the package of measures required to keep the thing afloat, and that they are indeed paying new agency workers below the UK minimum wage, uh, rather instead going for international maritime minimum wage. It was not clear what the PR strategy was from P&O today uh, going into this meeting, but whatever it was, it didn't work, I think it's fair to say. It will only stoke further public anger and strengthen calls for the government to prosecute if it can. Elsewhere, results from Next, as ever, good and positive, but the firm did warn it will be booking a substantial hit from rising costs and inflation as those pressures continue to bedevil the retail sector. Next, still somehow finding the secret source to keep the high street business going very well indeed, and the blend with online continuing to pay off. Elsewhere, positive results for Eve mattresses, but worse news down the road at McColl's, the convenience store operator's CEO stepping down with rescue talks ongoing. Um, plenty more corporate news on CityM.com, but we've got plenty to talk about about the path of the future economy. Um, I'll bring Jack Barnett, our economics and markets correspondent, in here now. Jack, you attended sort of two briefings this morning, one for the Resolution Foundation and one from the Institute of Fiscal Studies. The thing with budgets and spring statements is that they can often unravel quite quickly over 24 hours yesterday started to unravel yesterday afternoon when it became apparent that the sort of tax cutting chancellor was still going to have us at a tax burden highest since Clement Attlee was in Downing Street and I think it's fair to say more criticism piled on today yeah, so we kind of had a record time of um, people actually starting to realise what the effects of um, the chancellor's uh, announcements were Yesterday, it normally takes about twenty four hours, as you were saying. There, we normally get uh, calculations from the Institute of Fiscal Studies and the Resolution Foundation, who kind of go into the weeds of this sort of stuff and then give us the top lines. But I think most people kind of got there immediately um, yesterday and realised some of the damning forecasts um, put out by uh, the OBR. So, yeah, this morning we had some um, we had the post um, statement um, analyses from uh, the IFS and the Resolution Foundation. I think just the top line there is that. So Paul Johnson, who is the, the the chief of the IFS, and normally quite a good uh, quite a good person when it comes to this sort of stuff, is um he's calling um Rishi Sunak a fiscal illusionist, which essentially um you know the reasons why he's kind of given him that label was that yesterday he said that he announced um, the biggest tax cutting measures at any um, fiscal event for twenty five years. Now the IFS do think that's true. They think uh, it was um, the biggest tax cutting. Um, statement or fiscal event since the autumn of 1995. However, all the measures that he announced yesterday, so the one, the, the penny off, um, uh, off the pound and income tax, um, the the higher national insurance threshold, it's all going to be offset by previous announcements. It's all going to be offset by the 1.25 percentage point of height national insurance. Um, don't forget that quite punchy corporation tax hike as well, and dividend tax hike just more and more being piled on. So, you know, yesterday, uh, Sudat was at pains to kind of brandish himself 
as this so-called tax-cutting chancellor he wants to be, now the wonks don't think he is. And, you know, they also think that the uh, the tax burden is still going to be the highest um, since the 1940s. Yeah, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, the, the numbers that you look at, is so easy to get slightly lost in the lost in the sort of flood of, of numbers that come at you. But we are talking historic figures. This isn't fiddling around the edges. This isn't, you know, a little bit higher than it was last year or a little bit higher or lower than it was five years ago. These are decades-long records that are being broken. We have had an extraordinary time of it, of course. You know, we weren't really out of the foothills of the global financial crisis in terms of growth um, when the pandemic hit and then a war in Ukraine and all the issues with the supply chain that that has created. For me, the most troubling, well, two two really troubling elements of of the numbers yesterday and some of the analysis today. Yesterday, in my fear was you know, growth forecasts, frankly, lack of growth forecasts, um, which we talked at length about today. But it, this IFS briefing on on average real pay mm. pertains to me quite a difficult time for the Chancellor going forward and for the Buca economy going forward because it, it, it more or less, and you can explain it better than I do, but basically it looks to me like 20 years of lost growth. Yeah, pretty much. So we had, um, there was a really quite damning chart in the IFS briefing this morning, which basically tracked um, average real earnings growth for the best part of 50 years or so. And you can see um, the trend growth that we had prior to the financial crisis was kind of you know, it was on a really, really good trajectory. I think around about the time now, um, most people would have probably reached about forty thousand pounds in terms of um, in terms of their incomes. Now, since the financial crisis, the average um, household in the UK has foregone eleven thousand pounds in in real income growth. Now, what that translates to in terms of the wider macro uh, macroeconomic picture is that you know people are just worse off than they would have been had we not had the crisis in 2008 and had we not had successive crises um, from COVID and looking like another one now from um, the war that it just leaves people more squeezed. It leaves people with less room to be able to spend. It leaves people with less room to be able to, you know, do the things which generate economic growth. And we've already had, like you were mentioning there, we've already had these forecasts out from the OBR saying that growth is going to be markedly worse than what we thought it was going to be in October. Um, and if people were facing this enormous living standard shock over the course of the next year, that really quite um, damaging real wage um, growth that we've had over the last 10, 11, 12 years or so doesn't look like it's going to get any better. I think there was a there was a chart in the Resolution Foundation um, briefing which, which said that over the course of this parliament, so 2019 to 2024, um, is going to have the worst rate of um, living standards um, shock over the course of any parliament since 1950. So I think there was that mm. very famous quote from, from Ronald Reagan that when he was um, running in the 1980s asking people whether or not they thought they were better off over the course of um, this government. I, I imagine there might be um, some some <laughs> people using the similar sort of tactic uh, in the run-up to 2024. Yeah, I'm probably getting a, a punchy answer. Of course, I mean... The other thing to remember, of course, within that is that whilst average pay is basically not average real earnings, essentially flat, mm. the housing market over those past 20 years has gone gangbusters. So you, you've got this real split in the economy between the sort of the asseted and the and the non-asseted. Um, and that feels like it will become a political touchstone as well. Jack, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much.
I think we all need a drink after that. So let's bring in Kirstine Campbell. She's the master whiskey maker at the Scottish distiller Macallan. It's fair to say that Macallan has really ridden the wave of whiskey's sort of past couple of decades of real rise again to prominence with some really interesting brands, interesting expressions, as they are called, interesting liquids, as they're known in the trade, um, but really just some bloody good whiskey. So, Kirstine, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Andy. I'm pleased to join you today. Um, amazing job title. What does that look like on a daily basis? All of us that are stuck in the office all day, staring at spreadsheets and trading patterns and market reports. You'll sound far more interesting on a daily basis. Yeah, I guess it does sound pretty exciting, doesn't it? Um, I Actually, I love the fact that, you know, there isn't such a thing as a typical day for me. Um, what I love about my role is that it is very diverse, you know, and that can be, you know, whether I'm based at the McAllen Estate where I am today or based at our head office in Glasgow. Um, I love being up here with the team. I lead the whiskey mastery team. So that's a, a team of whiskey makers. And it's our responsibility really to make sure that the quality of the McAllen is exceptional in every one of our whiskies. Yeah, well, I mean, I think most people that try it would probably agree with that. How, how important is it to you? Because obviously, McCallum is such a uh, sort of heritage brand in a sense of, you know, having this exceptional history, always being known for the quality of the liquid inside those bottles. But it's also a brand that over the past however many years has always seemingly, from the outside at least, tried to innovate as well and tried to do interesting things. How difficult, how easy, how rewarding is it to have that kind of heritage brand and all that history, but also be trying to do some new and exciting things in the whiskey industry? You're absolutely right. You know, it is a careful balance between that history and heritage. Um, you know, we'll be coming up soon to our 200 year anniversary. So there's there's that that we've, we've got to maintain, of course, but then we've also got to be forward thinking. So yeah, like I say, for me, it's having that careful balance between, you know, maintaining the quality, the consistency, the heritage, all, all the things that McAllen has become renowned for over the years, but also at the same time looking ahead to how we can do things a little bit differently as well. Mm. I'll talk about maintaining the quality because obviously in my head that sounds like an awful lot of tastings, but I imagine there's probably a bit more to it than that. There is. And, you know, I use this uh, terminology on a daily basis, nosing, and just expect people mm. to know what that is. But <laughs> basically, we spend um, hours in the sample room um, we get samples from all of our casks and we nose them. So we assess the whiskey by smelling, basically. And, you know, it's amazing what you can pick up from the smell of a whiskey without having to taste it even. Um, that's not to say that we don't taste as well, but, you know, we, we can be looking at, well, we are looking at thousands of samples every single week. So you couldn't possibly taste, taste all those. Um, the, your nose is very sensitive to aromas or ours are certainly because that's where our skill set lies. That's what we're mm. trained in. Um, so the majority of what we do is nosing, but you know, if we're creating new products or doing final approvals on whiskies that are going to bottle, then we do taste them as well. 
Mm. We'll talk about one of the um, one of the really special whiskies that came to market recently, the Reach, just in a second. But I'm wondering about the uh, they talk about the skill set around the nose and the aromas. How much of that is is training? How much of it was a gift? Was it, you know the first time you were given a whiskey? Did you immediately pick up vanilla and and cherry notes, or is that is it a learned thing? Presumably, it's it's the latter. It is. Yeah, there's a huge <laughs> amount of what we would say on the job training um you certainly have to have a natural ability and be able to smell aromas you can't teach that um but what you can teach is the articulation of those aromas um the the skill in knowing what combinations of aromas and flavors work well together and and things like that and that can take years and years of training um i began as a trainee blender back in 2007. Um, so, so my training has been since, since that moment, spending time, you know, with my predecessors in the sample room and, and learning from them. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff um, as a skill as well. And clearly the, the quality of it is tasted in every bottle. One bottle I regrettably will not have the option to taste um, because it remains slightly out of the price range of a print print newspaper editor, alas, is um, is the reach. Tell us about the reach. The reach is truly an amazing whiskey, and I feel absolutely honoured and privileged to have, have worked on that. Um, it's an eighty-one-year-old Macallan um, from a sherry cask that was filled in nineteen forty. Um, so. Eight, over eight decades maturing away and yeah my myself and the team um, did the sensory assessment and decided that now was the time to release that as a as a whiskey so yeah inc- incredible it's the oldest whiskey that we have released it's the oldest scotch whiskey ever to be released so to have been involved in the project to I don't want to gloat here, Andy, but to have tasted that whiskey is just quite amazing. <laughs> yeah, that is um, that's definitely uh, one to be proud of. But it wasn't just the I mean, obviously, the liquid was amazing. But the Macallan, as I guess this speaks to the wider brand and the, the innovation at the heart of Macallan. There was also an awful lot done with the the bottle, right? This was not just shoved in your, your average bottle, right? Absolutely not. Um, we worked with a range of scottish artisans on how to how to present this amazing whiskey and you know we worked with a sculptor saskia robinson who you know created the um the three hands that cradles the the amazing bottle um and and that is also presented within a a beautiful wooden cabinet so it, it really is the work of many hands and mm. you know true of true craftsmanship 81 years of um of craftsmanship in the in the, in the liquid as we uh, as we approach the weekend the sun is is out at least down here um give us your your pick for a, a nice summer whiskey the the first sun of the year for the weekend well hopefully that reaches scotland as well because we'll look forward to it. um <laughs> for me on a summer's afternoon, I would say one of our double cask Macallans. So our double cask range is a combination of our American oak sherry casks and European oak sherry casks. So you get lovely 
vibrant citrus flavours coming through from the American cast, so nice vanilla notes. Um, but complemented with that in the background, there's a lovely sweet spice, so things like cinnamon and nutmeg. So I would say double cast 15, um, perhaps topped up with some ginger ale would be a, a lovely, refreshing summer's summer's drink. Well, I'm certainly sold. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll let you go back to crafting that magical liquid. Um, and we'll speak to you again soon, I hope. Thank you very much, Andy. It was great to talk to you. And that was Kirstine Campbell, McAllen's master whiskey maker. Before that, it was Jack Barnett. I reckon it's the markets correspondent. That's all from me today and for the week. Uh, tomorrow, you'll be joined by the familiar voices of Nassim De Silva, Charlie Conchie, um, on our tech podcast, our once a week tech podcast. But from me, have a wonderful weekend. Try and enjoy the sunshine, and I'll see you next week.